Take your Bibles and turn with me, if you would, please, to Psalm 23. Throughout the weeks of this family series, we are on uh, week four, the third message to parents. Next week, we'll move on to children. Throughout these weeks, we've been connecting the role of parents in Christ to the loving example of God as the father of, as our father, as believers, as those who are followers of Jesus Christ. Last time, in part two of our message on parental chastening, we considered the methods of chastening and also the mindset by which we are called not to despise or otherwise resist that chastening Because though that chastening, uh, any manner of chastening, be that the correction, be that the rebuke, uh, be that uh, the the training, any of those elements of, of chastening, though they are not pleasant in the moment, yet by faith we know that they produce the peaceable fruit of righteousness unto those who are exercised thereby. So we endure with patience that chastening. We endure those things knowing that, here it is, Our Father has our best intentions in mind. And that is the end that we considered at the very end of our time last week. That's the end that I'd like us to really focus on this morning. That peaceable fruit of righteousness and seek to connect that concept to the ultimate goal that we have as parents when we're raising our children. Now, when we talk about this idea of considering the end rather than the journey of raising our children, it's, it's described in different ways. Some call it raising children on purpose. Some call it intentional parenting. I, as, as indicative of my, my title today, uh, I call it uh, raising uh, adults, not children. I tell people I'm not raising children, I'm raising adults. The idea is that I'm looking toward the end, not, not, not just the journey, but the end result. I am always doing what I'm doing for my children with a reference toward the end result that I am looking for, right? And that's the idea that we're getting at here. In the end, they all describe the same thing, that the manner in which we direct our children's hearts works toward an end, that we have that end in our mind, that we understand what we're looking for and we chasten them, we raise them with that end in mind. And as with everything we've seen thus far, so too with this. We are compelled to do it in our own parenting specifically because this is the way the Father treats us. In Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, the Bible says, Being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. We see this idea of a confidence that we have within ourselves that the work that God began performing at the moment that we accepted Christ as our Savior, the moment that we recognize that we are sinners, that we cannot save ourselves, that we're separated from God because of our sin, that we need Jesus to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves, and we place our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, God then, uh, the Bible says, He 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 accepts that. He forgives our sin. He breaks the chains of sin in our lives. He places his spirit inside of us. He seals us with that spirit until the day of redemption. And in doing so, he begins a work in us. And everything that he does from that moment onward in our lives is intended unto this end that we are conformed to the image of Christ. He is working an end in us. He is working a goal in us. He is continuing to perform that good work until the day of 
Jesus Christ. And of course, we all know Romans 8, 28. We're all familiar with this. It's the same idea. And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them that are the called according to his purpose. That doesn't mean that if I love God, everything is going to go good for me. As a matter of fact, what we studied in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 11, about the chastening of the hand of the Lord, and that it's not always good. It's not always joy. It's not always joyous. It's grievous. We recognize that that means that bad things are going to happen in this life, whether because of sinful men or because God is going to be pushing us forward in our relationship with him. There are trials, there are temptations. These things happen in our lives. However, what we know is that God is working those things together for good because he is using them to conform us to the image of his son, Jesus Christ. These, among many other verses that we might consider, reflect God's intentionality with his children, that God is raising us on purpose and for a purpose. That as we live, making choices, exercising faith, some will forge ahead in that faith with vigor. You're going to read something. You're going to believe it. You're going to move ahead. You're going to grow fast. Other people are going to be stubborn children. And you're going to struggle with the same lesson again and again and again. And God's going to have to bring the rod again and again and again as he chastens you back to himself and as he tries to get you to learn this lesson. And it could be weeks, months or years even um, it shouldn't be, but, but it could be, right? As we are working through the process of learning the lessons that God would have for us to learn. And this is what we're going to consider today. We began two weeks ago with the understanding that the thing that we are aiming for in the act of parenting is the heart's of our children. Because if we get the heart of our children and we we get their inside right, then the outside has a way of taking care of itself. Then last week, of course, we considered that in practicality. And I was talking after the service last week and and, and was, was remarking that uh, it, was, it was remarked to me that, that the principles that we studied last week as it related to child-rearing are actually, with the notable exception of, uh, uh, of, of physical chastening through spankings and such, uh, is not uh, much different, if at all different, from the principles that you would use in, in many other human interactions of authority, uh, whether that be employee-employer, employee, uh, whether that be uh, a, a mentorship or whatever it might be. Uh, the same principles apply as it relates to stretching, as it relates to pushing forward as it relates to having goals in mind. These sorts of things that we're, we, we don't get better if we're not corrected, that we don't get better if, if, if we are not pushed a little bit. And this week we consider the end goal, not just of the child, but of the child-parent relationship. And this end goal goes back to that design principle that we considered in week one when I talked about the design of the family. Multi-generational discipleship. The end goal, parents, of you raising your children is not necessarily just that they find themselves to a place of, of, of good actions and of, of, of societal stability, but that they find themselves in a place where they have a right relationship with you by which they are inclined to foster that multi-generational link, that multi-generational tie to move forward with, a, with, with, with one foot in the past connected to you and their grandparents and their parents and their parents, and then another foot moving society into the future. So that the end goal is not just that I would have a child whose heart is right with God, but that through my efforts, I would have won the heart of my children to myself. 
for a lifelong relationship, a lifelong trusting bond. That their hearts would be drawn to my heart so that their affections and their, re- their, their respect would rest on me so that when at once they are no longer under my direct authority, we'll talk about this next week when we talk to children, as they leave home, they leave their father and mother, they cleave unto their spouse, their hearts still rest in that generation that raised them. So that my experience and my love, your experience and your love for them can guide them and the society that they are carrying with them into wisdom and stability. And in accomplishing this, as we said in the first message, you aren't able only to bless your child. You, You will bless your child, but that's not it. But you're also able to bless a whole generation. And perhaps even the next generation, your grandchildren's generation also. And that's the goal. What this means is that chastening, the chastening we've thought of over the last two weeks, is in fact a means to an end. An end that is not simply behavior, an end that is not even agreement, an end that is relationship. And we know that this end is the end into which parenting ought to direct us as parents. Because this is the end unto which God's fathering directs us as his children. He works with us, he disciplines us, he directs us, he cares for us. Unto the end that we might love him, trust him, and obey him for our best good. And so this week I'm going to talk about this in reverse order. Typically I've talked to parents and then I have brought this to some sort of broader conclusion as it relates to the character of God at the end. This week I'm going to do it in the opposite way. I'm going to talk about our relationship with God first. And then once I finish talking about our relationship with God, then I'll bring this to uh, parents at the end. Excuse me. Now, there are many passages that we could go to in order to think through this, but as I have you, you notice today, I have you in Psalm 23, that is where we're going to go to think through this idea of relationship with God. So we read in Psalm 23, I'm going to read the whole Psalm, and then we'll walk through it verse by verse. Of course, it's only six verses long, um, so it's, it's uh, not, not too big of a chunk this morning. The Bible says in Psalm 23, a Psalm of David, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside the still waters. He restoreth my soul. He leadeth me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For thou art with me, thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. Thou anointest my head with oil. My cup runneth over. Surely, goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. I encourage you this morning not to allow the familiarity of this passage to cause you to miss what is happening here. And as we walk through it verse by verse, what we're, what's happening, what we're looking at here is a relationship and specifically a relationship of confidence. So we read in verse 1, a psalm of David The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Now let me just make a quick note here. Within my Bible, 
Um, uh, it says the Psalm of David and, and, and a Psalm of David is not connected to verse one per se. It says Psalm 23, the next line, a Psalm of David, the next line, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Uh, you, when you, when you, in your King James Bible, when you're looking at the Bible, some of your Bibles will have headings on them. And that heading may describe something as it relates to the Psalm. Perhaps the heading says the shepherd Psalm or something. And that's in a different font. When you see these headings that are in the same font as your Bible, so they're in the same font as the verses that follow. This is actually in the Hebrew text. So these are God-inspired headings. And then, of course, a lot of times our other Bibles will put various uh, um, editor headings on top of it as well. So when we think of what is actually Scripture, a Psalm of David, that's actually in the Scriptures. That's actually something that is in the Hebrew text. And so take note of that. Every once in a while, there's something relevant and needful that comes up where we say, no, that's actually Scripture. And then other things where we say, well, that's just an editor's thought or idea or summary of the events at hand. So David says, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Now the word want in this context is the idea of lacking something that is needed. It doesn't mean I won't ever want anything in the idea of, of desiring to consume something upon my lusts or, or that I will be 100% satisfied for all the days of my life in my flesh. But the idea is that I never have to want because I will have everything that I need. And David's expression here is that because of who my caregiver is, the Lord is my shepherd. Because of who the Lord is to me, because of the nature of my relationship with him, David has confidence that he will never lack anything that is fundamentally needed in his life. But the concept of confidence goes much deeper than many of us might be naturally inclined to think. If I might gloss David's confidence here based upon the verses that we'll, we'll study in just a moment, I'd put it this way. David saying, because God is my shepherd, my caregiver, my father, I know I am kept. I know I am protected. I know I am directed. And I know that God's manner of keeping, protecting, and directing me is what is best for me. Kept, directed, and protected, but not just that I'm kept, protected, directed, but that his keeping, protection, and direction are, in fact, what is best for me. See this as we continue in verse 2. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside the still waters. David begins with the obvious element, right? I shall not want. I have all of the needs that I, I need provided for me. God is the good shepherd, makes me to lie down in green pastures and leads me beside the still water. Now for a sheep, that would be food and water. This is uh, wellness. This is contentment, but this is provision, right? These are the basics of life, echoing Jesus's promise in Matthew chapter six, verse 30, that if God so clothed the grass of the field, which today is and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, shall he not much more clothe you, O ye of little faith? And while this is what we think of when we read those words, I shall not want, I will have my needs provided, having food and raiment, let us therewith be content. This is actually just the, 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 the foundation, just the beginning of the relationship that we have with God as our Father, as our Shepherd. To put this in the perspective of the Father and of the child or the parents and the child, 
There is feeding and clothing our children. That's the absolute baseline of parenting. This is what a child first understands when it comes to his parents. Uh, Our little one, uh, over a year old uh, now, just barely over a year old, and um, she still is very much so, her her mood still very much hinges on how close it is to food time, right? So that when it's the hour before food time, there is nothing to do to console my daughter. It doesn't matter if I hold her. It doesn't matter if I play with her. It doesn't matter if I give her the toy that she's been enjoying for quite some time. It is getting close to food time. And this is what mom and dad do, right? We exist to feed her. As far as she's concerned, that's what we are. We exist to feed her. That's the basic element of parenting, right? That's the foundation. That's the thing. We exist to make sure our children's physical needs are met. And if you're not doing that, then you're not even a good caregiver, uh, you know, much less parenting. But if this is all you do, if all you do is make sure that their basic needs are met, that they're fed and clothed, you're certainly falling short of what the Bible says parents ought to be. You're not bringing them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. You're not chastening your children in faithfulness. You're simply providing for them the basics. And and I don't say that to minimize the beauty or the power of what David is writing here as it relates to this, this intrinsic idea that God provides for our needs, that the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, that he makes us to lie down in those green pastures and he leads us beside those still waters, a place where we can, where we can rest and where we can be refreshed. But God, and God forbid that we should take for granted that in our lives, even though this isn't necessarily the battle that many of us are facing in this time and in this place in the wealthiest nation in the world. But we must acknowledge that this is only the beginning. These are only the basics. If God doesn't do this, then we certainly have no means by which, no reason to call him our father or a provider. If God doesn't do this, then and he's not our father, he's not our provider, then we certainly don't have a relationship with him. He might be our dictator. He might be our sovereign, although even a sovereign has a vested interest in making sure his people are cared for if he wants to stay in power. God might have some authority over us, but if he isn't caring for us, he certainly isn't a father. But there's so much more to our relationship with God than just him providing the basic necessities of life. Look at verse 3. He restoreth my soul. He leadeth me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Now, this is fascinating. He restoreth my soul. This place of provision that he leads me to where there is uh, grass and there's water, where there is food and there's, there, there's water, says is also a place of restoration. Along a path of righteousness, a straight path, a clear path. He leads me in the way I ought to go. He does not just set everything before me. He leads me in the way that I ought to go. He leads me in the way that I need to go. As I follow the good shepherd, I find myself in a path that is straight, a path that is right for me, a path that is good for me. Now, that path is not always an easy path. Path. That path is not even always a pleasant path. We'll talk about that in a moment. As he leads us along this path of righteousness, we will pass through what is called here the valley of the shadow of death. So it's not always an easy path. It's not always a pleasant path, but it is always a good path. It's the path of righteousness. 
Notice what David writes next, verse 4. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. The valley of the shadow of death is not a place any of us wants to be within this picture. But it is a place that, first off, human experience passes through. You are not going to make it through from one point in your life to another if the Lord tarries and you're given a, 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 uh, a meaningfully long life. You are not going to pass from one side of it to the other without passing through difficult times, without passing through trials, tribulations, temptations, confusions, frustrations, fears, and anxieties. But notice the confidence of the psalmist. I will fear no evil. For thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. So David says, I'm not going to fear when I walk through these difficult times. Because I know you are with me. I know that you have led me in the path of righteousness for your name's sake. That straight path. I know that you're leading me to something. And I know you're going to take care of me in the midst of it as long as I stay in the way that you should go. And to this end, he says, thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. David gives a picture here of two tools that are in the hand of the shepherd. Now, the first is a tool of chastening, of correction. The shepherd's staff, the rod, is a tool with a very well-known crook on the hook uh, or hook on the end of it. This is something that you'll see if you ever see a picture of a shepherd in kind of a clip arty sort of a way. You're going to see a person there and he's going to have a, a staff in his hand and it's going to have a little crook or a hook on the end of it. And the functional purpose of that hook was to pull the sheep away from where they wanted to go and to pull them to where They needed to go. The sheep doesn't necessarily always go where it ought to go. It has a tendency to go where it wants to go. But the good shepherd is with his sheep, directs his sheep in the way that they should go. Softly, sometimes, other times, with a heavier hand, but always with the same objective to direct the sheep in the way that it should go, into the way of green pastures and still waters, onto the path of righteousness, even if that means going through the valley of the shadow of death. Now, the second implement that he says here, thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me, it was there for defense. Fitted first that the shepherd would hold onto that staff and lean upon his staff so that he would stay upright, so that he would stay standing, so he could remain alert, so that he could watch out for dangers to the sheep. And then, of course, fitted secondly, uh, so that when that danger did in fact come, he could be instrumental in warding off that danger, perhaps with that staff. And notice David's expression of these tools. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Now, this is very interesting. It doesn't surprise us, perhaps, that the staff comforts us. That when we, as the sheep, see our shepherd standing up on a hill, leaning upon his staff, looking over his sheep, looking for those who would seek to harm us, that that is a comfort to us. But what about the rod? The implement of correction. David says this implement of correction is also a comfort to me. Not because David liked it when God used it, but because when God used it, David knew that his shepherd was directing him in the way that he should go. Because he knew he needed it. 
Because when we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, that rod keeps us from walking into that death itself. This correction, this redirection, this resistance to the will of the shepherd is corrected and it's for my best good. And because David knows this, here it is. Because David understands the intentions of the shepherd, the intentions of his father, and he also understands the limitations of his own knowledge, wisdom, and experience, David sees the chastening hand of God and he finds in it comfort because he knows that when he strays, which he's going to do because he's so human, that God is going to, in his love, redirect him back on the path that he should go. And this is the idea that we read about in Hebrews 12. My son, despise not the chastening of the Lord, neither be weary of his correction. For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth. The chastening hand of the Father, when done properly, of course, and our God always does, is a hand of love, not of rejection. It's a hand of faithfulness, not of hatred. It's a mark of God's care for us. And we talked about that last week. But today's question is, with what result? Unto what end? And here's the end. The end is a drawing nigh. A confident love and trust. The result is that the sheep, if the, if, and, and we don't necessarily always see this in real sheep because they're not the most discerning of creatures. But the idea is that you and I, as the sheep of our good shepherd, who happen to also be discerning creatures, and in the case of parenting, your child, the protected, the provided for, the directed, would trust the protector, the provider, the director, and so would stop wandering away. So relent, repent quickly when he's corrected and love and appreciate and even long for the correction of the father because that correction of my father is an indelible mark of the extent to which my protector Loves me. And when I'm in this place where when I receive that resistance from the Lord, when I receive that correction from the Lord, I am quick to relent and to repent and to realign. When I feel that directing hand of the Lord, I am quick to go along with Him. When I see God going in a direction, I am hasty to follow Him in that direction. When I am there... It gives me a sense of stability and of certainty and of safety because I know if I'm going in the wrong way, my father loves me too much to just let me go that way without stopping me. And I know that if I'm in danger, my father loves me too much to just stand by and let me get hurt. And what this allows me to do is to walk, to make decisions and to interact with the world that is around me in confidence. When my little ones are little, and we go to the store, and I've given this illustration in various ways before, 
When we go to the store and I'm holding my child's hand, a lot of times my child will not really be watching where they are going. The store is big and there's lots of people and they like to watch and there's colors and there's sounds and there's sights. And so the children have their hand in mine and they're just doing this all over the place. They're not watching where they're going. They're not looking at anything. But here's the thing that they know. They're, they're holding daddy's hand. And because they're holding daddy's hand, daddy is directing them. And so they have the confidence and the freedom to look around because they know that they are being directed in the way that they should go. They know that they're not going to get lost because they're holding daddy's hand. So they can just look around. They, can, they, they have a confidence that gives them a freedom to operate within the bounds of that which, which, which daddy has given them because they are kept safe and secure. Because I know that my father... Is there because the shepherd, the sheep, excuse me, knows that the shepherd is standing on the hill above him, leaning on his staff, watching his every move, ready to defend him, ready to correct him, ever intending to lead him in the path of righteousness. The sheep can be confident, comfortable, secure. Verses five and six. David writes, Thou preparest the table before me in the presence of mine enemies. Thou anointest my head with oil, my cup runneth over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Now, in these last two verses, David steps outside of the shepherd and the sheep metaphor, bringing in some manner of application into his own life, that God will prosper him in the presence of his enemies because he is the one, David is the one that God has chosen to bless with his anointing as king. But even as king, notice how David sees himself effectively as a sheep needing guidance by the good shepherd. Always with this confidence, however, that as David submitted himself to the Lord's rod and to his staff, that he could rest in the Lord to lead him into that place where he will make a table before him in the presence of his enemies, where his cup will run over, where he will be well taken care of, that goodness and mercy will follow him as he follows the shepherd all the days of his life. As he dwells in the house of the Lord forever, as he remains closely knit to the presence of his Lord. So that as David would walk through the valley of the shadow of many deaths, and indeed he did in his life, he was convinced that whatever was going to come his way, as long as this way was directed and protected by the good shepherd, it is what is best for him. And so David will gladly rejoice, even in the sorrows, even in the hard times, even in the chastening, even in the fears, because he knows the intentions of his father toward him. And as we think through this idea, there are some, Paul gives some very startling statements that reflect this idea of trusting God's intentions in his own writings. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, this is a very well-known passage, Paul is speaking about his own trials, the trials in his own lives that were given to him specifically because of the 
abilities that he had. We read in 2 Corinthians 12, beginning in verse 7, Paul says, And lest I should be exalted above measure through the abundance of the revelations, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I should be exalted above measure. For this thing I besought the Lord thrice that it might depart from me. And he said unto me, My grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness." Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in mine infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities and in reproaches and necessities and persecutions and distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then am I strong. Do you see the same idea here? Paul had a circumstance in his life. We believe it maybe had something to do with his eyes. He calls it a thorn in the flesh. Galatians chapter 4 verse 15 implies uh, Paul, Paul writing to the church of Galatia and he speaks of how they were, they, the, the love toward him was so much that they would even give him of their eyes. So we think that there may have been something wrong with his eyes. We don't really know, however, and it doesn't really matter. But Paul is going through a, a deep and a troubling affliction in his life and he asks God, three times that it would go away. And God said no. God's answer was, my grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Now, this, what, what just happened here is this, that Paul went to his father and he said, Father, there's this thing in my life that I do not like and I would like it to go away. And father said, no, son, I'm not going to take that thing away. You need to trust me. You need to lean on me for your weaknesses, my strength in your weaknesses in this time of your weakness. Now, a child who does not trust his father says, dad doesn't love me. Dad doesn't understand. Dad doesn't have my best in mind. I'm angry at dad. Now I'm going to show dad my anger. I'm going to rebel against dad. I'm going to do things to show dad I don't like what dad is doing to me. That dad is not taking this away. Maybe this, the, the, this child would flop down on the floor, start kicking his arms and his legs and screaming. Uh, however, however that child would react, that child might throw a fit. But the child who understands his father's intentions toward him says, if dad says this is best for me, then I'm going to believe it. And I am going to thus change my perspective on what is happening to me. So that whereas Paul initially said, this is really bad and I need it to go away. Now he says, this is what is best for me. I am going to rejoice in it. I am going to rest in it. I am going to operate in confidence in the midst of it, specifically because I know that it is what is best for me. And I know that it is best for me, even though it's not fun. I know it is best for me, even though it hurts. I know it is best for me, even though it's difficult, because My father gave it to me, and I trust my father's intentions toward me. He would say a very similar thing in Philippians chapter 4, beginning in verse 11. He'd say, not that I speak in respect of want. This is the same idea of want, of lacking of necessities. For I have learned in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content. I know both how to be abased and I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things I am instructed both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. Do you see Paul's confidence here? 
the determination that he will be content in any condition, whether he has a lot or a little, whether he's abounding or suffering need, he will be content because he knows his good shepherd stands over him with his rod and with his staff and that rod and that staff, they comfort him. He knows that he is being led even in those times where he's in the valley of the shadow of death to that place of green pastures and still waters. And this, parents, is the goal. The goal as you raise your kids, as you raise godly adults, as you seek to their hearts, as you chasten them to align their hearts with God, to align their hearts with your heart, the end goal is that as your children learn and grow, they will not only become responsive to your chastening in fear. I don't want, I don't want mom and dad to take that away, so I'm going to respond, right? That, that's one thing. But that they would become responsive to your chastening in love. That they will come to so implicitly trust you, to trust your love for them, to trust your intentions toward them, that when you ask them to do something that they're not going to want to do, especially as they get older, that even after they leave your direct authority and you still call up your, your child or sit in front of your child and say, you know, I love you. I've always loved you. My intentions have always been good toward you. I'm encouraging you not to do that or to do this. The goal is that they would come to love your correction and your direction because they know that the heart behind it is a heart of love toward them. And this comes through helping them see these very things. That when you correct, you do so with a gentle hand. You help them understand why it is you're correcting them. You reaffirm their love for you. You show them the green pastures and the still waters unto which you're leading them. This direction and correction will become a part of their security and their confidence in you. Directing their hearts toward you rather than away from you. And then you don't have to get to that place that many parents find themselves where the way I describe it is they're afraid of their children. That as their children get older, they have to have a hard conversation. They have to confront their child about something. But they don't do it because they say, if I do that, my child is going to reject me. My child's going to get angry. My child is going to walk away. My child, I'm, it's going to create a rift between me and my child. Well, if that happens, it's because your children do not trust your intentions toward them. Begin working early in the lives of your children, parents, to build up in them a trust of your intentions. And that means you have to be trustworthy. It means you have to be faithful, clear, consistent in your expectations like we talked about last week. Build up a foundation of trust so that when the time comes that you have to push them to the limits of that trust, they will place their confidence in you and not reject you. The idea is not that I must reluctantly do what God wants for my best. 
The idea is that because I know God's intentions toward me, when I see God asking me to do something and my spirit bristles at it. Have you been there before? God's asking you to talk to someone, to make something right with someone, to give, to, to, to give or be generous to someone, uh, to, to, to stay, to leave, to go. And you're bristling at it because it's not going to be fun. It's going to be difficult. And it's going to come with a cost. But you say, I trust my father's intentions toward me. So I'm going to do it because it's what's right before my father. And I know that he's leading me to that path of, of righteousness, to the green pastures and the still waters. So I gladly submit even to the rod and to the staff, which in the moment of chastening brings me nothing but sadness, but which I know more assuredly than I know anything else will produce joy in its latter end. And to that end, I don't despise the chastening hand of the Lord. So that my children can understand that when I chasten them, whether that's correction or punishment or rebuke or training, that it is an extension of my faithfulness to them, my love to them. And though they maybe won't feel that in the moment that their flesh, their 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 heart, which is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked, is trying to convince them that, nope, mom and dad don't like you. Yet what overrides in their heart and in their minds is, no, my parents are being faithful to me. And they may even come to the point where they welcome the chastening hand, where they're thankful for the chastening hand, where they even desire the chastening hand. One of my children is kind of this way, particularly when this child was much younger. Um, that child would, would continue to act up constantly until we, and, and, until we spanked the child. And it was like a, a, a natural rhythm where this child will continue to act up again and again and again and again and again. But once they receive the consequence, it's like their spirit was at rest. They knew that they got what they needed to get, what they deserved, and then there was a reconciliation with parents, and there was a, a, a reorientation of relationship. And while that child was too young to come up and to welcome the chastening hand, per se, the results were the same. And parent, this is our example. You are not a cold, impersonal disciplinarian parent. You are not an objective tutor meant to inculcate biblical ideas into your children's heads. You are a shepherd of your children's hearts. And your goal is not to command and to modify behaviors. That's a method. That's not a goal. It's good. You want to modify their behavior, but that's a method. That's not the goal. The goal is to win their hearts to you. So that they trust your intentions for them. So that even when they're grown and away, their heart remains close and they seek to that multi-generational uh, legacy of love and of good intentions for themselves and even for their children. And as you win their hearts to you, you lay the foundation of winning their hearts to God. Because when God talks about himself as a father, 
in Proverbs chapter 3 and in Hebrews chapter 12. The child says, I understand that. I understand the chastening hand of the father in whom I am well pleased. So you win their hearts to you so that you can be that guide throughout the years of their trials. Most of which, as you and I know full well, will face them in the years after we've already raised them unto physical adulthood. In those years that you have them then, parent, faithfully chasten them to prepare them for life, prepare them to be good and godly spouses. Of course, that means you need to set a good example of being a good and godly spouse. Prepare them to be a good asset to the local church. Of course, that begins with you making yourself a good asset to the local church. Prepare them to be functional in a modern world, to protect them from the dangers of that world, the flesh and the devil, while simultaneously preparing them for the day that they must, in fact, protect themselves. But the goal is to do all of this the same manner that God does it. Not by commanding us to do, but by commanding us to follow. Not by poking us, but by leading us. Not through the compulsion of fear, but through love. God wins our heart with his faithfulness. God wins our heart with his love. And then he says, because I've already done the work, because I've already sent my son to die on the cross for you, because I've already shown you every amount of love I can possibly show you and that Jesus did this thing for you on the cross, now follow me. And may we as parents do the same. May our goal be not simply to educate our children, not simply to discipline our children, but to win the hearts of our children to ourselves in order that we might carry forth with them into the future. And what will this take? Well, this will take humility, parents. A willingness to admit when you are wrong, to be honest about your own failings, to not, as we talked about last week, to avoid the situation where you take your children's struggles with obedience or with forgetfulness or whatever it might be as a personal affront to you and so to lash out at them in anger, you're going to have to be humble. Second, it's going to take focus, parents, to ensure that your chastening is directed toward the end of your child's needs and developments. That you are not just chastening in no direction at all. That it's not, you're not just throwing stuff at the wall, but that you are actually directing your chastening unto the end that you desire as it relates to raising adults. Intentional parenting. Raising on purpose. Don't just implement a one-size-fits-all program to address the needs of your children who are as different as the day is long. It's going to take time. It's going to take patience. At times... You're going to have to explain the what. You're going to have to explain the why, the love behind the pain, the method behind the requests. It's going to take discipline to know when to protect and when to allow them to suffer the consequences of their actions, to call to mind the greater purpose of your efforts on their behalf, that they are on their behalf, to be consistent in your enforcement as a means by which to help them connect your actions to their actions rather than to your emotions as we talked about last week. 
And it's going to take endurance to do it day after day after day after day after month after year. Molding the minds and hearts of your children to be the kind of person that you know they can be in God and for God. Continuing the work that began in them the moment they entered into the world until the day that you send them out into that world. And that's what Philippians chapter 1, verse 6 tells us God does for us. And you, parents, get to be that very first picture of the character of God that your children see. You are also your children's first and most stable link from the lessons of the past to the potential of the future. So don't just teach them things. Don't just mold their actions. In this, our final message in this family series to parents, I encourage you parents to be working to win their hearts, to bring your children to the place where as they grow, they are ever more inclined to trust your intentions toward them. So that when it comes to the point where you have to stand in opposition to what they think they know or think they want, but you know better, they are inclined to trust you. They are drawn to your intentions, to your heart. They seek back to that multi-generational wisdom and stability as the, the, the foundation upon which to build the future. And in doing so, we establish health, healthy families, healthy multi-generational families. We establish a healthy church because we do the same in the church. We hold on to the... To, 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 we stand on the shoulders of those who have come before us, but we are moving into the future and carrying the church with us. That's our goal in the church. It's our goal in the home. Win their hearts, parents. Teach them to know and to trust your intentions toward them and watch your children blossom. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net. 